you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to the book of Psalms. This morning we'll be in Psalm 10. And as you turn there, I just want to express my uh, gratefulness and appreciation to both Matt and Tyler for filling in for me while I was gone. My wife and I had the privilege of going across the pond a couple weeks ago, uh, spent a few days in London, and um, but the bulk of our time was spent in Scotland. Uh, you know Matthew Marshall was here just a few months ago from Scotland and preached on the sovereignty of God and salvation, and uh, we got to return the favor and be there with Glenrothes Baptist Church in Glenrothes, Scotland, and meet with Matthew and their senior pastor and travel throughout their county, which they call a kingdom, which I think is awesome. They live in the kingdom of Fife, which is amazing. Um, but yeah, they took us all throughout their region, and uh, it's, it's heartbreaking. This land where the Scottish Reformation began, and we would go from town to town. Here's a town of 25,000. There's no gospel witness here. Here's a town of 30,000. There is no gospel witness here. And yet, grand cathedrals in every town, multiple. Um, but there is a spark of revival. There are some godly, like-minded men and women who desire to see Scotland reached with the gospel. And it was just a privilege and a joy for us to be able to spend time with them and rub shoulders with them and pray with them that God would allow the gospel to advance throughout that land. And so uh, thanks to Matt and Tyler, the pulpit was in uh, much better hands than it is even now. So grateful for these guys um, employing their gifts and serving the church in that way. Uh, they did a good, great job of really kicking off where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this summer, which is in the book of Psalms. And this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 10. Bible scholars will tell us that Psalm 9 and 10 really should kind of go together, just as Psalm 42 and 43 went together, as we saw last week, that they really should be one psalm. In fact, uh, if you have a Roman Catholic Bible, which I hope you don't, but if you did, um, it would have Psalm 9 and 10 as one psalm. It would just be Psalm 9. It includes them together, and that's because the Roman Catholics use the Greek translation of the Old Testament as their basis, the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, Psalms 9 and 10 are combined as one psalm. Whereas in the Hebrew translation, which is what the Old Testament was written in, they are two distinct psalms, Psalms 9 and Psalm 10. Which, by the way, is why when you look at a Roman Catholic Bible or when you look in the Septuagint, you will see a difference in the numbering of the psalms. It begins with Psalm 9. Thereafter, the numbers don't really match. They do match at the very end. Both of them have 150, and that's because uh, the reverse happens later on in the book of Psalms. But should they be two or should they be one? There's definitely a, a certain sense of commonality between Psalm 9 and Psalm 10. And as Tyler showed us last week from Psalms 42 and 43, sometimes the lack of a superscription at the beginning of a psalm is an indication that it should go with the previous psalm, that it should all be one. But that's not always the case because there are a lot of psalms, a fifth of them, over 30 of the psalms don't have an inscription at the beginning. And so that's not always the case that they should be lumped in with the previous one. Additionally, some Bible scholars see an acrostic here that obviously won't be apparent in the English language, but in the Hebrew language, they will see an acrostic that begins in, in Psalm 9 and continues through Psalm 10, kind of like we see in Psalm 119, where the beginning of each verse, there it's the beginning of each uh, passage, begins with a successive letter in the Hebrew alphabet. But the acrostic that we find in Psalms 9 through 10, I've scoured all of the commentaries, a myriad of them, and I haven't seen a single one that shows an acrostic that looks anything like what I know to be the Hebrew alphabet. There are letters missing, there are letters out of order. And so while there's definitely a commonality in the flow of thought between Psalm 9 and 10, I don't think that they were intended to be one psalm. Instead, 
I think that they're meant to be two complementary psalms. And they complement one another in their differences. Psalm 9 is a psalm of thanksgiving. Thanking God for deliverance from wickedness and evil. Psalm 10 is a psalm of lament. Lamenting that God has not delivered from wickedness and evil. And so, I'd intended to cover Psalm 9 this morning. And then to cover Psalm 10 later. But with the occurrences of what we've seen on the news this week, I felt that us covering a psalm of thanksgiving this morning, particularly a psalm of thanksgiving, thanking God for deliverance from wickedness and evil, would have been particularly out of place. So this morning, we're going to cover them backwards. We're going to cover Psalm 10 this morning. Next week, we're going to look at another psalm that gives us a blueprint for missions and outreach as kind of a kickoff to serve week. And then, Lord willing, the following week, we'll return here to cover Psalm 9. And so I know we had one last week, but this morning we're going to cover another psalm of lament. And that just seems appropriate, given what we've seen and heard and read about this past week. It garnered much less attention, but on Monday, the report of the Sex Abuse Task Force on the investigation of the handling of sex abuse allegations within our denomination was released. And it was tragic, and it was awful, and it was and is cause for much lamentation. It showed wickedness and evil at all levels, from the local church to national entities. And then, of course, on Tuesday, we received the reports of a wicked, evil person wreaking chaos and terror and unspeakable tragedy in the town of Uvalde, Texas. My parents, I know this is Family Sunday, and so I want you to know that I'm not going to be graphic in my descriptions and depictions. I'll leave that to your wisdom and discernment in your own family. But my encouragement to you, mom and dad, is not to shield your children too much from the wickedness and evil that is out there. Because really, Psalm 10 is is the cry of the heart of a believer in God who is living in a fallen world. And we cannot so long and forever shield our children from the reality of the wickedness and evil. We must lovingly and wisely walk them through the reality of that so that they can have the kind of heart that the psalmist gets to in Psalm 10. Both of these situations call for lament from God's people. In response to them, we lament and we grieve. And we cry out to God in our lamentation. And Psalm 10 gives voice to those cries of our hearts. So let's read Psalm 10. And then seek to unpack it together. This is the word of God, church. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. 
Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God is forgotten. Let He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see. For you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Let's pray. Gracious, heavenly Father, Be with us as we wrestle with the same sort of sentiment with which the psalmist does in this passage. Hear the cries of our heart, the crisis of faith that they betray, and lead us to a reinforcement of our trust in your sovereignty and your goodness and your perfect and eternal justice. Thank you for this precious word, Lord, and what it means to us today. Minister to your people this morning, Lord. Through your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've entitled this message this morning on Psalm 10, Where is God when the wicked prosper? And that, although is not an explicit question that he asks, that certainly is the sentiment of this psalm, is it not? Where is God when the wicked prosper? My outline for this psalm goes straight from the word, the first half of the psalm, verses 1 through 11, display the arrogance of the wicked. And the psalmist here questions why God seems absent when the wicked arrogantly thumb their noses at God as they entrap and do violence against the helpless. And then beginning in verse 12 to the end of the chapter, the end of the psalm, the psalmist prays to God, asks God to intervene. He ultimately answers his own question as to where God is, that God has not been absent, but he's been present, taking note of the actions of the wicked, strengthening the hearts of the oppressed, and that justice will one day be done. So the psalmist begins here by asking a question. There are three why questions in this psalm. Two of them are found in the first verse. He says, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? 
Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And we hear the heartache behind the question. Clearly, these why questions are not out of curiosity. He doesn't want God to kind of fill in the blanks of his doctrinal paper here on the nature of God. God, I'm curious why you would hide yourself here. No, these, these questions are asked out of pain and out of anguish and out of hurt and perhaps no small measure of disappointment as well as lament in the psalmist's voice. A couple of things that we learn from this. First of all, just as Tyler said last week, it's okay to ask God questions. It's okay to pose the why questions to God. He doesn't rebuke us for that. Neither the psalmist here, nor Job when he asked that question, nor even the Apostle Paul when he asked why. None of them were rebuked when they asked God why. It's okay to ask God why. God, God, why, why, O oh Lord, would you allow this to happen? God, why didn't you stop it? And we should note here that the psalmist is not given an answer in this passage. Sometimes, dare I say most times, that's the case. It's not that there's not an answer, it's just that an answer is not given. At least not in the moment. And certainly not an answer that we would find satisfactory in the moment. Because in the moment of suffering, we can't fathom that there is an answer that would be satisfactory. That's why we're asking the question, why, O oh Lord? Because we can't possibly fathom a satisfactory answer for how this could possibly be for our good and God's glory. And so like a child to his father, we cry out, why, O Lord? Friend, that's the right posture for a believer in Christ when wickedness seems to be winning. When we suffer at the hands of wickedness and evil. It's the right posture to lean into our relationship with God. He goes to God with this. Oh Lord, Yahweh. God, why do you stand far away? He brings it to the Lord. Was that your initial response this week? Was that your reflective action to go to the Lord with what was happening? It was for the psalmist, and we would do well to emulate that impulse. Listen, friend, God is not offended by your why questions. You're not going to offend him by asking why. May I remind you that Jesus asked why. As he hung on the cross, paying for your sin and mine, enduring not just the physical pain of crucifixion, but enduring the spiritual separation from the Father. He cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You're not going to offend God with your why question. It's okay, it's okay to ask God why. It's okay also to tell God how you feel. It's okay to be honest with him in prayer. What did the psalmist say here in verse 1? Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Now, I would submit to you that David, who is writing this psalm, he knows full well that God is not standing far away. He also wrote Psalm 34, where it says in Psalm 34, verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He knows that God is not far away. He also knows full well in his head that, that God is not hiding in times of trouble. Because in the parallel psalm in Psalm 9, he says in verse 9 of that psalm, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. 
So David knows full well in his head that God is not hiding in times of trouble, that God is not absent, but in his heart, that's exactly what he's feeling. It's what he's wrestling with. And I'm so glad that God is so compassionate with the psalmist here and, and, and doesn't come at him as the doctrinal nitpicker. He, he doesn't say, well, you know, theologically, that's a very inaccurate way of viewing God. God is never absent, so you need to live your life based on truth, not on how you feel. And absolutely, that is the truth. And sometimes we need to be reminded that our emotions are completely unreliable and we can't base our life on them. We have to base our life on what we know to be true. But sometimes we just need a shoulder to cry on. Sometimes we just need to wrestle with what's on our heart. Friend, we need to be real with God like the psalmist is here. We need to be real with him as we relate to him as our father and not put on some kind of mask with him and, and, and try to hide how we really are feeling in our hearts. The psalmist is not presenting a doctrinal paper here on the theology of the nature and character of God. He's crying out to God and he's telling him what it feels like. God, it feels like you're not here. God, it feels like you're hiding in this time of trouble. Now, what we're going to see here is that this psalmist is going to work through this stuff. He's going to wrestle through this stuff in prayer with the Lord. And, and he will ultimately end up at a beautiful statement of faith on the nature and character of God. He'll eventually get there, but for now, he's just wrestling He's being real with God in prayer, and he's wrestling through these feelings in prayer, and God doesn't push him away. It's okay to ask God why. It's okay to tell him how you feel. As long, church, as long as you don't go try and adjust your faith to what you're feeling. It should always be the other way around. We always adjust our feeling based on what we need to be, know to be true in God's word. So in the remainder of this first half of Psalm 10, David describes this time of trouble of which he says in verse 1, God seems to be hiding from this. So what is this time of trouble? Well, he, he, it's, it's a description here of the wicked taking advantage of and doing violence against the oppressed and the helpless in front of him. What stands out to me in this psalm about the wicked is their pride and arrogance towards God and their callousness towards the helpless, towards their victims. In verse 2, he says, In arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. In arrogance... In verse 3, we're told that he boasts of the desires of his soul, which is another way of saying he knows what he wants and he's going to go after what he wants no matter the cost, no matter the damage to the victims. He boasts of the desires of his soul. They are number one. In the first part of verse 4, David writes that in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him, does not seek God. The pride of his face is a, is a, is a word picture of the, the nose upturned at God. I don't need to have anything to do with God, the wicked says. In fact, in the last part of verse 4, he even denies the existence of God. He says all of his thoughts are, there is no God. In verse 5, he puffs at his foes. In verse 6, he boasts of his impunity. Look at verse 6. He says in his heart, the wicked says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. In other words, nobody can touch me. I don't have to answer to anyone. 
fact, he says in verse 11, he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Note there that the emotional cry of the psalmist himself in verse 1, why, O Lord, do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Mirrors here the wicked's consideration of God. God has hidden his face. And he will not see it. And so there's a sense in which, yes, being real with God in prayer is good and important so that we don't fake it with God. There's a danger in that as well. Because there is a temptation to bend what we know to be true about the nature and character of God to what we see and experience and feel in our heart. And again, it should always be the other way around. We should bend what we experience and what we think and what we feel to what we know and see described for us to be the character of God in his word. The wicked here are described as arrogant, prideful, boastful. They thumb their noses at God. I'm accountable to no one, certainly not to God. And so I do what I please with complete and utter impunity. And I think it's interesting that the wicked here contradicts himself. Did you catch that? He contradicts himself. He's so caught up in himself, he, he, he's contradictory about what he believes about God. In verse 4, he says, there is no God. And in verse 11, he says, God has forgotten and hidden his face. Well, which is it? Does God not exist or does he exist and forget? Again, in verse 11, he says that God has forgotten. And then down in verse 13, the wicked says that God will not call to account. Which is it? God's forgotten? Or he remembers, he just won't call to account. The wicked is so caught up in himself, he doesn't even know what he thinks about God because he's so preoccupied with himself. Derek Kidner notes here of the wicked, he is a practicing atheist, if hardly a convincing one. He's not a very convincing atheist because he's not even consistent in his atheism. This is the wicked. And who is his target here? Who are the victims of the wicked in this psalm? Look at how they're described throughout this psalm. In verses 2 and 9, they're described as the poor. In verse 8, they are the innocent. In verses 8 and 10 and 14, they are helpless. Also in verse 14, they are the fatherless. In verses 12 and 17, the afflicted. And in verse 18, the oppressed. Who's that describe in our society? Who is it that fits that description? Who are the poor, the innocent, the helpless? The fatherless, the afflicted, the oppressed in our society? Certainly young, school-aged, elementary children fit that description. Poor, innocent, helpless, maybe not fatherless, but that word in Scripture is a euphemism for the most vulnerable of society. The victims of sexual abuse in Southern Baptist churches fits that description. The unborn in the United States of America for the last 50-odd years fits that description. Really, anyone who is the helpless victim of wickedness and evil in society. And what happens to them in this psalm? In verse 2, they are hotly pursued by the wicked. In verse 3, the wicked devise schemes to entrap them and capture them. In verse 9, they're ambushed Like a lion ambushes its prey in the thicket, they're seized when the wicked draws them into his net. And in verse 10, they are crushed, they sink down, and they fall by the might of the wicked. So the wicked are described here as arrogant and prideful towards God and callous and vicious towards the helpless and oppressed. And the psalmist sees this. 
why he writes this psalm. He observes this, and how does he react? We've already noted that he's being honest with God in prayer. He tells God, that, man, it feels like you're far off here. It feels like you're hiding in this time of trouble. Though he knows that God is not far off, that God is not hiding, he's honest with God about how this feels. He wrestles with God through that. But now here, the psalmist expresses almost a, a tangible frustration that it seems as though the wicked always prosper. Good verse 5. His ways, the ways of the wicked, prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. And as for his foes, he puffs at them. His ways prosper at all times. We can almost feel the incredulity in the psalmist's voice here. The wicked is arrogant and prideful and boastful, thumbing his nose at Yahweh while being vicious and callous and doing violence against the oppressed and helpless. And the psalmist laments, why do the wicked always prosper? Though he doesn't ask the question why here, we can almost feel the why in this passage, can't we? Why do the wicked prosper? Jeremiah, the lamenting prophet, the weeping prophet, asked the same question. Jeremiah 12, verses 1 and 2. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. At least he starts off on a right note. I know I'm complaining, but that doesn't change who you are. You're still righteous. Yet I would plead my case before you, he says. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Lord, you plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. They're giving lip service to you, God. Why do they always prosper? Job wondered the same thing. Job 21, verse 7. Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? And of course, another psalm, Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. At least David is lamenting the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph, who wrote that psalm, confesses that he's envious of their prosperity. David laments, why do the wicked prosper? Note that we don't have an answer to that question in this psalm. Neither is Jeremiah met with an answer. Job is. God answers Job. It's a quite long answer. It extends from chapter 38 to chapter 41 of that book. And, and God's answer to Job is, in essence, summarized, I am... But in this psalm, the question, why do the wicked prosper, goes unanswered. And we don't have time this morning to seek to unpack the answer to a question that's not answered in our text. But I, just, I want to let this very same David answer his own question in another psalm that he wrote, Psalm 34. Listen to the first seven verses. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. In other words, take the long view. Consider the eternal outcome of the wicked. He goes on, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. 
Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil desires. Consider the long view for the wicked. But you, man, woman of God, trust in the Lord, commit your way to the Lord, and he says, and he will act. He'll bring forth your righteousness like the sun and justice like the noonday. Justice will come. But here, the same David, here in the midst of this challenge in Psalm 10, he sees the arrogance and pride of the wicked. He observes the helpless plight of the oppressed at the hands of the wicked, and he laments. And his lament is expressed in asking God why it seems like he's far off, why it seems like he's hiding during this time of trouble, and why it seems as if the wicked always prosper. And he's processing all of this with the Lord in prayer. He's being honest with God in prayer. And friends, when we find ourselves wondering why God would allow wicked people to do the kinds of wicked things that we saw and read about this week, and when we consider the helpless plight of the oppressed, it is good and it is right and it is appropriate for God's people to lament and bring these honest thoughts and feelings before the Lord. There's no hiding the fact that this is a crisis of faith for the psalmist. He is most definitely on the precipice of questioning the character and nature of God here. But the difference is he's doing it with God. He's bringing these things to the Lord. He's crying out to God here. And, and that's what we need to do in that crisis of faith. In a crisis of faith, it makes a huge difference what our posture is, whether we're leaning into God or leaning away from God, which is what so often young people are doing today as they deconstruct the faith. They do it apart from the church they do it without bowing their heads and asking the God of the universe to meet with them and wrestle through this stuff with them. So now, in verses 12 and following, the psalmist moves from commenting on the prosperity of the wicked and the plight of the oppressed, and he begins to pray in earnest for God to intervene, for God to do something. And as he begins to pray for God to intervene, as he does this, we see his faith in the nature and character of God begin to be reinforced. He cries out in verse 12, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. So he's, he's processing this with God in prayer, and he's, he's being tempted to think that, that God is sleeping. And so he tells God, arise, O Lord. He's further tempted to think that God would forget the plight of the afflicted. And so he begs God not to forget them. But again, he knows that God doesn't sleep. Most Bible scholars also ascribe Psalm 121 to this very same David, in which he writes, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. I don't know the difference between slumbering and sleeping, but David says God won't do either of them. David knows this in his head that God doesn't sleep. He also knows that God will not forget the afflicted. In fact, again, in the previous psalm, the parallel psalm, in verse 12 of Psalm 9, he writes, For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. He knows this in his head, that this is true about God. But he's wrestling with what he sees. He's wrestling with what he feels, with what he's experiencing. He's trying to reconcile that with what he knows. And he's doing this with God. And again, he asks in verse 13, Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? 
But then as he continues to wrestle, look at verse 14. As the, as the psalmist's faith and the nature and character of God begins to be reinforced, it's almost as if you see the, the rebar being placed into his faith to reinforce it here. He says in verse 14, but you do see, you do see. Right after he says you don't see, he says, but you do see, Lord. And you take note. You note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. He says, Lord, you don't need to be roused from your sleep. You don't need someone to nudge you and bring your attention to the plight of the oppressed. You note it. You see it. And you're taking note of it. You don't need someone to remind you because you see it, you note the mischief and vexation of the wicked, and you take it into your hands, meaning you will deal with it justly. Lord, to you, the helpless commits himself. Why? Because you have been the helper of the fatherless. This is a beautiful statement of faith in who God is and and where God is in times of trouble like this. Where God is when it seems as though the wicked prosper. He is not far off. He is not absent. He is there. He's not asleep. He's awake and he's taking note. And he is the helper of the helpless and the fatherless. But what we need to note here is that the psalmist's faith in the nature and character of God is strengthened only after he brings his heartache to God, he brings his concerns to God, he brings his crisis of faith to God in prayer. And as he does, his faith in God is reinforced and buttressed. And out of this newly reinforced faith, He makes this bold appeal to God in verse 15 to break the arm of the wicked and evildoer and call his wickedness to account till you find none. The call to break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer seems like an imprecatory psalm. It's not literally a request that his arm would be physically broken. The arm was representative of one's ability to perform a particular task. And so if their arm was broken, they're rendered incapacitated and unable to perform that particular task. And so this request to break the arm of the evildoer and the wrongdoer is It means to render the wicked unable to continue to do violence against the helpless. And the psalmist entreats the Lord here to call his wickedness to account until you find none, until there is no more wickedness on the face of the earth. And in saying that, this reminds the psalmist as it should us That this calling of the wicked to account to where there will be no more wickedness on the earth will only happen in the new heaven and the new earth after Jesus returns and the judgment occurs. And I believe that's what David is alluding to in verse 16 as he affirms the sovereignty of God and the ultimate justice that will come. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. That's what what will happen. So now we have this closing statement of faith from the psalmist in verses 17 and 18. And as we listen to this, church, I want us to note the roller coaster that his faith has been on. His faith has gone from verse 1 Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Lord, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? That was the condition of his faith then. Now, upon wrestling through this with the Lord, now listen to him. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth 
may strike terror no more. There is no indication to us in this psalm that the psalmist ever saw with his own eyes the kind of justice that he longed for in this particular situation in this psalm. But that's not what he's entrusting himself to here as he closes. He's entrusting himself and he's entrusting the the oppressed and the helpless to God in whom perfect justice will one day be poured out on all injustice. So this psalm is both a warning to the wicked as well as an encouragement to the helpless. It's a warning to the wicked that God will one day bring them to justice. And it's an encouragement to the oppressed that God will one day give them justice. We often read a psalm like this, I do, and we so readily identify with the perspective of the psalmist that we don't often think how we're often really more like the wicked than we are like the oppressed and helpless. Left to our sinful flesh, we are the prideful and arrogant. And while we may ascribe intellectually to the reality of God, so often we act and live as if we are practical atheists, as if God doesn't really exist, or at least as if we will never have to give an account to Him. And this psalm is a warning to the wicked that God sees and he takes note and he will one day call the wicked to account. And on that day, there will be perfect and inescapable justice. But it's also an encouragement to the helpless and oppressed who are afflicted by the actions of the wicked. And it's an encouragement to us who perhaps observe the plight of the afflicted as they are victimized by the hands of the wicked. It's an encouragement to us that God is not absent. He's not sleeping. He's not far off. He's present. He's near. He sees. He takes note. He hears their cry. And he will strengthen the hearts of the afflicted. And one day he will met out perfect justice to right all wrongs and the wicked will answer for their deeds. That justice that we long for may not be according to our timetable. Most of the time it isn't. In fact, what imperfect justice we might see in this world and in our day is but a shadow of the perfect justice that is coming according to God's timetable. But friend, nowhere do we see the justice of God more perfectly displayed than in the cross of Calvary. All the sins of all mankind will all be paid for. No sin will ever go unpunished. The sins of those who reject Christ, who reject the gospel and spurn God, their sins will be paid for through their own eternal punishment. And the sins of those who come to faith in Christ and respond to the gospel in repentance and faith are paid for by Jesus' substitutionary death at Calvary. You see, grace does not mean that God is robbed of justice. Justice is going to happen. Grace doesn't mean that sin will not go unpunished. Grace, church, means that the sinner will go unpunished. The sin still gets punished. It's just, praise God, the punishment is poured out on another. God will have his justice. He must, or else he is not a just God. 
God will have his justice, either in our sins being laid on his son's shoulders at Calvary as he dies in our place, or by our sins staying on our own shoulders and we pay for them forever. And so again, this psalm is a warning to the wicked. And who are the prideful and arrogant? We are, right? We are. We're included in that. And this psalm reminds us that justice is coming. Perfect justice. Unavoidable justice. Inescapable justice. For all the wrongs that we have committed. The question is, on whom will that justice be poured out? On Jesus in our stead? Or on us forever? But it's also an encouragement to the helpless who are afflicted by the actions of the afflicted. And those of us who observe such injustice in the world. That while perfect justice may not happen in this life, it is coming. So be reminded that God sees. He takes note. And he's preparing that justice right now for which we so long for in this life. And when we see injustice like is described here, injustice like we've observed on the pages of our newspapers and TV screens this week, let us take our questions and our emotions and our wrestlings and our weak faith to God and he will comfort and he will strengthen and he will reinforce our faith in who he is. Let's pray. God, sometimes things happen we don't understand. Sometimes it happens to us. Sometimes we see it happen. And Lord, our hearts go out to them. And Father, when that happens in our lives and when it happens around us, May we be reminded that, Lord, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world where wickedness and evil run rampant. But as we learn from our previous study of your book of Revelation, it's on a leash. And it won't go any further than you allow it to in order to accomplish your sovereign purposes. But even in that, Lord, Father, sometimes we lament because we don't, we can't connect the dots between what we see and what we know to be true. And so, Father, we wrestle with you and we are thankful that you give us a book in Scripture that gives voice to the cries of our heart in those moments. And in the end, Father, we are so grateful that the truth of who you are, your sovereignty, your goodness, your justice, your grace and mercy wins out. And so, Father, we plead with you to bring justice, to bring healing, to bring solace, to bring the balm of your word and your truth to those affected by the tragedies we've seen and read about this week. And Father, as we wrestle through this, may it reinforce our faith in who you are and that none of it changes you in the least bit. And one day, perfect justice will be poured out like rain, like the noonday. We long for that justice today, but we trust and know that one day it will come. Until then, persevere us in the faith, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.